As you know, we have started a series on the book of Acts called To the Ends of the Earth. And this is to help remind us that we are on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit to do our part in our corner of the world to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, just as our forefathers in the faith have done. Now, there are some beautiful stories here in the in the book of Acts, chapter three and four. We're just highlighting snippets of each of these stories. And this evening, I want to highlight the response that the early church had to the threats that were leveled against Peter and John as they went about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were warned to not preach anymore in the name of Jesus, and they were threatened with beatings and punishment if they continued doing so. And we pick up on the story when these men go back to their community and report what happened. And so if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the sermon text this evening, Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word, and all the church says, you may be seated. So in context, the two apostles, Peter and John, had been arrested for healing and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ and warned never ever to do it again. I want you to note here that it was not for healing or for preaching only that they were threatened, but because they were healing and preaching in the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus that stirred up so much controversy. Now to us, the name of Jesus is so familiar and common, we can't imagine why it would have caused so much trouble. In their day, the name Jesus was also common. Many Jewish men and boys were named Jesus. They were named Joshua, which is the Hebrew or Aramaic form of Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form. So many of those people were named 
Joshua or Jesus. So what's so big uh, with the big problem about this particular name? Well, Peter and John had made it clear that they were not talking about just any and every Jesus or Jesus or Joshua that was out there. They were talking specifically about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man who just a few short weeks ago was handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles and crucified. And Peter stirred up the crowd by charging them with the death of Jesus, that he is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he's become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter and John were bringing a name brand religion to the people. They were talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, pinpointing this person and this work and showing them that he comes in with a baked in set of exclusive truth claims that Jesus is the one who was crucified by sinful men and yet resurrected by holy God. He is the one who was rejected by religious and political leaders and cast aside. And yet God repurposed him and made him the centerpiece upon which heaven and earth stands or falls. Jesus is the one and only savior of the human race. This is an exclusive claim. No other God, no other man can save. And the fact that Jesus came to, came to save actually disturbs sinful man. It disturbs sinful man because many sinners do not see themselves as needing salvation. They don't see any rhyme or feel any need to be saved. And so... By preaching this very specific Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they were provoking the world around them to wrath and to anger. I would maintain that in our world, it's more or less okay for any of us to say that we believe in God, for anyone to talk about believing in God's. It's more or less okay for people to profess that kind of generic faith but what the world cannot tolerate, what our world cannot accept is a name brand God named Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who makes man in his image and likeness. The world wants a God that is made in the image and likeness of man. By preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we challenge that and the world knows it. So the mission of the church is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to the ends of the earth. It's not just to take good news about some God out there somewhere, but the good news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this is the purpose and mission of the church. Now you find that the world puts up resistance. And this is what happened with Peter and John. The community around them put up resistance. And I want to point out that this community that put up resistance was a deeply religious community. It's been my experience in ministry that deeply religious people are some of the most difficult people to deal with. They're entrenched in their way of thinking and they don't like to explore new ideas. Everyone feels comfortable and satisfied with their approach. So they're difficult at times. 
But this is what Peter and John confronted. Now, notice that after they were threatened and warned, the very first thing they did is they went to social media and they tweeted about it and they put it on Facebook and Instagram and all those places, right? Now, the very first thing they did is they went and they gathered together with their friends. I love this. Now, they've made a decision early on. They made a decision, an a priori decision, that they are going to listen to and obey God over man. And there's where the rub is. Then they go to their community. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. The most remarkable thing about this story to me up to this point is this, that you have a group of men who were likely in their 30s or 40s and they had friends. That's remarkable, isn't it, guys? Because we know how hard it is to have friends in these days. But here are some men who go to their friends and they report what has happened to them. They're devoted to each other. This is their response. They're devoted to the Lord and they're devoted to each other. These men had friends and not just men, but ministers. These ministers had friends. And that's another thing I love about this story. I've been told throughout all of my ministry that ministers cannot be friends with congregants. It just doesn't happen. Right. And often that is the case. People feel weird about being friends with a minister because things they would do with their friends without the minister present, they won't do when the minister's there. Right. And they don't know that he's actually worse than they are. But that's beside the point. Here you find the exception to the rule. These men go to their friends and and they're able to share and report what has happened to them to their community. I want to make a little note here for all of us. Don't underestimate the value of friendships. Don't underestimate the value of the friends you have or your need for friendships. We all need to make friends. We need to make friends because this is what uh, a gift that God has granted to us. This isn't just about, hey, brother, hey, sister. This is we're friends. Ministers and members alike can be friends. And we all need friends and not just any friends. We need Christian friends. It's not good for a Christian to be alone. We all need to find friends. We need to find as many friends within our congregation as we can find. Ideally, we'll find at least some friends here. Realistically, we're probably going to find Christian friends even beyond this congregation. And that's perfectly okay. It's right and good to do that because the body of Christ is broad and and diverse. And we need that. Okay, we need that. We need friends. We need a safe place to go. We need a safe place to tell people what's really and truly going on in our lives. We need to be able to tell them what we're afraid of, what weirds us out, what bugs us. We need that for each other. We need a place to go. We need to, and we, we need to be able to talk freely and openly in these safe places. But we need to do more than that since we're Christians. We need to get to the point where we also talk to the triune God on each, on each other's behalf. 
Okay, it's good for us to talk to each other, but we need to talk to the Lord about each other as well. And that's why these men went to their community, went to their friends and say, look, here's what's going on. Here's what uh, we're being told. And we need all of you to, to rally around the throne of grace with us as we seek God's wisdom and help. And they devoted themselves to prayer, praying together. I love this because there's nowhere in the story where you would find the things that we typically find. And this is, by the way, stuff that I do as well. Please don't think I'm picking on anyone. Okay, I'm preaching first to myself and you get to eavesdrop. But there's nothing in the story where they go and report what happened. And then everyone says, great, we'll keep you in prayer. Right. And then they all go their separate ways. That's what we do. Somehow that's an evangelical thing that we've developed over the last few years. Uh, Let's break that. okay? what they did is they heard the news and they got together and prayed right now for each other and for these men. And they did this together. The community was praying. This is men and women and children. I want to say to you kids, you kids, listen up for a second. One of my favorite parts of being together on the Lord's Day with you guys is listening to you pray in our children's catechism. The way you pray, the things you pray about, it's so important for you to grow in that. It's so important for you to pray not only here, but also at home. And so moms and dads, keep encouraging that in your kids because prayer is not just for the big Christians. It's also for the little Christians. Notice here that when they pray, they pray, first of all, they pray to God alone. They address the sovereign Lord who made the earth and the sea and everything in them, the God who spoke by the Holy Spirit. They're addressing God alone because in this moment of crisis, in this moment of threat, there's only one who can come to their aid. They've been preaching that Jesus is the only Savior. So what do they do? They now direct their prayers to the Savior. And in this prayer, they are confessing deep truths about God, acknowledging that they know who He is, that He is the sovereign Lord, that He is the one who created the whole world, and that He is the one who reveals His Word to them. And they're also acknowledging themselves as His servants. To say sovereign Lord is to put yourself in the role of a servant, of a creature, and of a disciple. And so their prayer is is directed to the sovereign Lord alone and to no one else. They're offering it to God through Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you that this is one of the great privileges that we have been granted by the gospel as children of the Father and siblings of the Son, Jesus, and as charges of the Holy Spirit. We have this great privilege to draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need where we may find grace. They prayed the Psalms. This prayer was not just a flare prayer. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't vain repetition. They prayed the Psalms. And so that section we read where they ask, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. That comes from Psalm 2. And they're praying the Psalms back to God because the Psalms have been given to 
the church as this divine prayer book. They may be sung and we, and we might figure out ways to sing them. But more importantly, we need to pray the Psalms. God has given us the language of prayer in the Psalms. And the church is so saturated with the Psalms as they've devoted themselves to the prayers and to the Psalms that when they pray, it pours out of them. And they found a Psalm that fits this circumstance, this situation, and they connect the two and bring that prayer to God. And it's likely... Very likely that they prayed the whole psalm, not just this one part. But for the sake of space, Luke doesn't put the whole psalm in. But they prayed the whole psalm. And if you listen to the rest of the psalm, you'll know what I mean. Because in the rest of the psalm, they are praying things that, uh, that show that they understand what the Lord God thinks about the enemies of Jesus Christ, the Son. The psalm says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. If you've been threatened by enemies who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, and you gather together and pray, and the psalm tells you that God's response to the threat is to laugh and to scoff at the enemies, what does that do for you? It gives you a bit of courage, doesn't it? If God is laughing, if He has nothing to be afraid of, what am I afraid of? He is the sovereign Lord over this experience. They also prayed what the Lord God thinks about His Son. This is also in Psalm 2, where the psalmist Echoing the words of God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel." Again, if you are being threatened by enemies, enemies who have already crucified your Lord and Savior, and you know that he's been raised to the dead from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, he's been placed on God's holy hill and that he will reign over all of the nations. What does that do to your fears? It drives them away. We learn what the Lord God commands his son's enemies to do. The psalmist has a message for those religious and political rulers who were threatening Peter and John and the rest of the church. Be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way for his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, here's a counter threat. You threaten God's people and God is now threatening you through his son, Jesus Christ. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And so you see, by praying the Psalms and speaking the language of God back to him, that begins to shape and form your life. And then finally, the psalmist tells us what the Lord God offers to all who serve his son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Peter and John and the rest of the church could have said, we can't take this pressure. We can't take these threats. We're going to go hide. We're going to flee. We're going to get out of this mess. Instead, they went to the throne of grace and they took refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took refuge in him in their prayers, in their prayers together. I want to tell you that takes courage and it takes conviction to pray the Psalms. They're kind of weird. They don't rhyme like you want them to rhyme, but they don't rhyme. And poetry is kind of hard for us. And they seem to repeat themselves. And they're very emotional. They're very emotional. Sometimes you pray the Psalms and you just you feel like you're singing the blues and you just want to you just want to cry. And other times you're praying the Psalms and you just feel like you want to go to war, right? You're so you're so juiced up. You just want to go fight someone. And other times you're praying the Psalms and you just want to worship. And other times you find a deep sense of peace in the Psalms. So pray the Psalms, pray the Psalms. It takes courage and it takes conviction to do that. Those of you who are working through a morning and evening prayer each day or trying to do that, understand what I mean by this. It takes effort to pray the Psalms morning after morning, evening after evening. But we're not just called to pray the Psalms or set prayers. We are also invited to pray our own extemporaneous prayers, personal prayers as well. And you see this at the end of the prayer with, uh, with this early church. Not only do they pray the psalm, but then they bring in their own experience to kind of connect the dots or bridge the gap. And they tell God exactly what's going on. He knows what's going on, but they want him to know that they've thought through it as well. And so they talk about things that have happened in recent days and things that are happening right now. But the interesting thing to me is they use this phrase to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is that's a huge statement because they're talking about some truly terrible and horrible and and difficult situations. And then they bring it all back to somehow God is responsible for this, that he's in charge of this mess. And they're okay with that. They recount the story of God's redemptive act in space-time history. And they believe that God is drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. And they're confessing that God ordains everything that comes to pass. They don't believe that Jesus Christ was crucified by some cosmic accident or by some human mistake. They believe Jesus was crucified by wicked men who were doing what the invisible hand of providence had planned and predestined for them to do. It's mind blowing. And they conclude that since the story of the world is unfolding according to God's purpose and plan, that they ought to pray that God will perform his works through their community. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. I got to tell you, this is remarkable. And I know you might just be hearing it right now for the first time. But if you think about it for a few minutes this evening before you go to bed, you'll see just how remarkable it is. Here's how it goes. They believe in predestination. 
But believing in predestination did not prevent them from praying or preaching or performing good works. In fact, it had the opposite effect. It empowered them to do these things. They wanted to do these things and asked for the strength and the courage to do them. It seems as if they're drawing the conclusion that if God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks, imagine what he can do with people like us who've been redeemed. We trust that he can make lovely shapes with cross-bearing people. They believe that whatever God ordains is right, and they did not complain about God's providence in their life. In this prayer, they did not even ask for comfort or security, although they might have in other times and places. But in this prayer, all we know is that they asked for constancy and courage to keep on doing what God had called them to do. They prayed for courage. I'm persuaded that courage is one of our greatest needs. It's one of our greatest needs. It's one of my greatest needs. It's one of our greatest needs as a church. It's a great need among God's people in this day. Too many of us are trapped in complacency or gripped by cowardice or seduced by comfort. Too many of us lack the courage to keep on doing the things that need to be done. When it seems that there's no hope in sight. When it seems that it might not end well. Courage isn't about doing what is easy when you know what the end result will be. It's about doing what is hard when you don't know if it's going to work out so well or not. As Gandalf said to a group of soldiers who were repairing a wall on the eve of war in the book Return of the Kings. Courage will now be your best defense against the storm that is at hand. But leave your trowels and sharpen your swords. Courage is often our best defense, isn't it? I haven't been able to watch this Netflix uh, program yet, but it's in my queue. Is it Brené Brown? Yeah. You might check it out. I've seen a few snippets here and there. It might encourage some of you, no pun intended, because we need courage. It's about courage. We need courage. We need to be filled with it so we can stare down our fears and stand against any threats and stay the course. We need to be filled with courage. And we need to be filled with courage in the 21st century As the world around us is rapidly changing, we need courage to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need courage to promote the truth about sex and gender. We need courage to protect the unborn and the elderly. We need courage to push for the welfare of the poor and the widow. We need courage to plea for more just immigration policies. We need courage to praise the true and living God even when others do not. And so we must pray that God will fill us with courage to take away our fears, to make us bold and not timid, to give us courage to keep doing the right things, the things to which He's called us. 
Remarkable ending to this prayer. God heard them. God listened to their prayers. And he responded. In this story, he responded in such a way that they knew that there was an immediate answer, an immediate response to their prayers. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Shaken because the Spirit of God was driving away their fears. And shaken because the Spirit of God was filling them with courage. We need courage. Now I said a few weeks ago that I really want to see us, and and all of us, I want to see myself and all of you grow in this grace of prayer. It's going to take some time, I get that, but as we walk through Acts, we'll be encouraged again and again to pray. And so I want us to grow in this grace of prayer. The question is, how can we do that? How can we do that? I want to give you a couple of practical tips now, and then over days and weeks to come, there might be some others. But here are a couple of things that you might want to do. First thing is this. Remember that I shared a link to a booklet by J.C. Ryle in our Facebook group. You can read it online for free. You can buy it from Amazon for like a buck ninety-nine. It's a short little booklet called A Call to Prayer. And I want to urge you with all of my pastoral heart to download and read that booklet. Download and read that booklet. It is strong medicine that we all need to take. It's fantastic. I read it again this week. Again, it's not very long. So when I say I read it again, it's not like I'm making a huge boast. Okay? But download that. First thing you want to do, if you're interested in praying better and more, read this booklet. It will encourage you to pray. Second thing you might do is this. Make prayer the first thing you do, or at least one of the first things you do every morning when you wake up. If you're like me, first thing you do when you wake up is you take care of a couple of private matters and then you jump on your phone and spend a lot of time on your phone. And that's a lot of fun to do that. And I'm not saying don't do that ever. But make better use of your time. Make prayer the first thing or one of the first things you do in the morning after you wake up. Off and on over the last couple of years, I've used the Book of Common Prayer the section on morning prayer for families. It's a great way to kickstart your own personal prayers, a great way to kickstart prayers with your family. It encourages you to read a psalm or two. And then you take time to pray your own things for things that are on your heart and things that are needy in your life. And then the third thing you do is you make prayer the last thing or at least one of the last things you do in the evening before you go to bed. I know the temptation is to jump on your phone one more time or to watch one more episode of The Office or maybe two or three. It happens. But what if you took that time and said, prayer is going to be the last thing I do this evening before I go to bed? And again, you can use the Book of Common Prayer, Evening Prayer for Families to kickstart that prayer. And then you read a couple of Psalms, take time to pray for pressing needs in your own life and the life of your loved ones, your children. Etc., and then you go to sleep and rest in the Lord. 
And then the fourth thing you can do is cultivate a habit of praying with people on the spot as soon as you're able. Otherwise, you're going to forget. I'm so terrible about this. And I've confessed before my own struggles in prayer, but I I think we can do better. Someone tells you about something happening, a need they have in life. Why wait until later when you may or may not pray for them? Why not say, hey, let's step over here and pray about that right now? That's going to seem weird at first, but believe me, when you've been around people who do that, it's not a show. It's just natural. They, They want to pray. They want to bring it to the throne of God. And we can do that for each other. And so these are a few practical tips that might help us grow in our prayer life so that we become a church that prays together, a family that prays together, um, friends that pray together in our times of need.